Hey, now, this is the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, and we are devastated to do this show today as we remember Wyndham Rotunda, better known as WWE superstar Bray Wyatt, who died unexpectedly Thursday at age 36. You know, the phrase one of a kind gets thrown around a lot in professional wrestling, but few actually live up to that moniker. Wyatt was certainly one of a kind, as was Terry Funk, who died Wednesday at age 79 and who we will discuss later in this episode. It's been difficult to wrap my mind around Wyatt's passing, just as it was that of his best friend, John Huber, Brody Lee, Luke Harper, who died less than three years ago in a similarly sudden uh, type of manner. Wyatt was stricken with agony following the death of his friend, and the wrestling world again now, just like it did then, is coming together in remembrance of a guy whose aura permeated through the screen and whose humanity was clearly cherished by family, friends, and dozens of coworkers in WWE who were quick to share their personal tributes to Wyatt on Thursday. Uh, Wyatt's passing comes just a couple weeks after his father, Mike Rotunda, formerly IRS in WWE, shared publicly that Bray had gotten past a health scare and was planning to return to wrestling. It was later reported that the condition was both career and life-threatening, and we were told as late as last week that was not only indeed the case, but there were actually preliminary plans in place for him to return to WWE before the year was out. Uh, Sean Ross Sapp of Fightful reported that Wyatt was diagnosed with COVID-19 earlier this year, which exacerbated some of his heart issues that I guess he had already. This is what we had heard from someone in WWE a couple months ago, and we were told early last week that his condition had improved substantially over the prior few weeks. And yet, he died of a heart attack early Thursday. Uh, Wyatt's death, it's simply devastating, both as we lose his genius and his unique brand of creativity and storytelling, and we got to enjoy that on our TVs for a decade, but far more importantly for his friends and his young family, which lost a father, husband, son, and brother. It's fair to say Wyatt was unmatched in terms of his creative genius. He was a generational storyteller. He captivated on the mic and had a presence that just demanded your undivided attention as a viewer, you could say he was a defining superstar of the last decade, someone who moved the needle, not necessarily because of his in-ring skill or even his storylines, but rather simply because fans were attached and desired to see him on their televisions and then in person at stadiums and arenas. With creativity, the level Bray could conjure it, though, comes inherent conflict, particularly within the WWE ecosystem. Vince McMahon seemed to largely embrace Bray, but there were clearly disputes involving his storylines over many years. And Wyatt's passion for his ideas and his visions left him dissatisfied when they were not followed exactly the way he envisioned them. And in the world of WWE then, and even now still to a degree, that's a difficult position to find oneself in, constantly fighting for your concepts and your ideas to be utilized with your passion in some ways seen as a detriment by your own boss. Wyatt being released in July 2021, it was an absolute shocker. Just over a year later, after Paul Levesque primarily took over creative and decided to bring Wyatt back, his return was arguably among the most captivating and most viral situations that WWE has created with the acapella version of White Rabbit playing during live events and commercial breaks, the QR codes hidden throughout Raw and SmackDown, and all the riddles culminating in that awesome return at Extreme Rules. Looking back on it, I'm just happy 
he got one last opportunity to be appreciated by the fans who loved him so much by being given one last chance to show some of that creative genius on the biggest stage possible. You could just tell that his spirit was happy being back in a WWE ring, finally working with his brother for the first time since they tagged in FCW during what seemed to be a storyline for Wyatt that was the culmination of everything he had been working on for a calendar year during his time off. And he really did have the whole world in his hands during that final run. Alexa Bliss, who worked closely with Bray, said she was extremely heartbroken and at a loss for words, calling him an amazing human being and a kind friend who brought so much joy and happiness to everyone around him. Big E, who's extremely close with Brody Lee, of course, and that tied him to Bray, said Wyatt was the first guy to take him under his wing when he got signed to NXT in 2009. Mick Foley said he was flattered that Bray decided to start using the mandible claw, calling him a true visionary and one of the most compelling presences in wrestling that has ever existed. Cody Rhodes, who was his pro when uh, Husky Harris was in NXT, he wished him rest. Keith Lee, who dealt with very similar COVID-related heart issues and was also scared for his life, said he had been rooting for Bray, just like Bray rooted for him. So presumably they were in contact about their similar health problems. And Matt Hardy, uh, who teamed with Bray in WWE, said his death completely shattered and devastated him. Natalia talked about knowing Bray since they were kids, going trick-or-treating together with their parents, sharing how he was such a humble and kind soul. Malachi Black shared how Wyatt was a sounding board for him and one of the few that actually understood his own creativity and convinced him to stick to his guns both in WWE and now in AEW. And Braun Strowman shared a real extended message, thanking Bray for teaching him about life and business, making him a better person, and actually asking him to be godfather to his son, Nash. Apparently, Bray was nicknamed Hoot backstage, and obviously, we have not heard from his family yet. But of course, Wyatt was a third-generation wrestler following his grandfather, Blackjack Mulligan, his father, Mike, and his uncles, Barry and Kendall Wyndham. And he was in WWE alongside his brother, Tyler, who was Bo Dallas. We will discuss Bray's career highlights and our specific memories about him as this show progresses. For those of you who may be listening for the first time, I should note, I am Adam Silverstein, the host of Getting Over. Our co-host, Chris Vanini, is also here and the co-host of my old podcast, Jack Crosby, joins us as well to discuss this gut-wrenching news from the last 48 hours as we remember the careers and lives of Bray Wyatt and Terry Funk. Chris, we were online together when we learned of Bray's death Thursday night. I know that it hit me really hard and kept hitting me harder the more I thought about it, the more I watched, the more I read as the night went on. What was your state then and how are you feeling now, you know, about 18 hours later as we tape this show? Just complete shock when the news came out. I was literally on Twitter and it popped up Triple H's tweet right there announcing the news. And I was like, what? Is this, is this real? I double checked to make sure it was a real account. And, you know, we, we'd known about the, the concerning health issues, but just all indications were, were that, you know, that he was getting better. And so for something so sudden to happen is just so heartbreaking. And, and I had a range of emotions immediately processing the news, wrote up a little thing for the athletic. But then late last night, Scrolling through my phone, I saw a lot more Bray Wyatt things pop up on my phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, moves, moments, promos, stuff like that. And what really got me was his return promo 
on this most recent run when he talks about I'm he says things like I'm nervous uh, I was really down. I was, I, I was vulnerable. I had lost my career. I'd lost everything. And I had people come up to me and say, Hey, Bray, you helped me, you know, through all these different things. And, and so he basically ends by saying like, he, he thanks the fans and he says, you all saved my life. And it was heartbreaking to just see that again and to remember, to, to look back on that and to remember that, you know, it wasn't just a straight line path for him in WWE. There was a time when he got let go and then came back and, and, and worked through that. And just you just think about his family, you think about his friends, you think about Brody Lee, and you think about uh, Eric Rowan, who's now lost two of his really close wrestling friends. And um, yeah, if anybody just hasn't gone back and watched that Bray promo from his return last year, it brings a tear to your eye. You know, it's hard not to break down watching that from a guy who really was going through a lot and kind of using this time as uh, just, it was therapeutic for him. And it was really cool to see him back and see the fans happy to see him. And then for it to end like this is just, uh, just terrible. Yeah. I mean, that was the most real thing that he ever did. It was the first time he was, you know, at least in, in kayfabe, he said, this is the real Bray Wyatt. Yeah. And I'm telling you all the thoughts that I've had. Uh, being in this industry and being in front of you for all these years. Jack, I know you were just as floored as I was uh, hearing all this Thursday. I think I, I may have unfortunately broken the news to you. Um, you know, what are your kind of initial thoughts here and, and what were they on, on Thursday night hearing this? Yeah, you did actually break the news to me because my wife and I are running around like maniacs these next few days trying to get stuff ready for our daughter's second birthday party. And when you texted me last night when that Bray died, I just texted back in all caps. What? Like yeah. I, I was just, I stopped yeah. everything I was doing. I immediately opened the phone. I opened Twitter and I saw the tweet. I think the second tweet I saw was the Triple H one. Yeah. And it was just like numbness for a bit because, you know, I was trying, I like the first, one of the first thoughts I had, like a lot of, I saw a lot of other people do. Like, when was the last time a, a top ish star mm -hmm. on the active roster just suddenly passed like this? And I think it was Eddie. Yeah, for WWE, absolutely, for sure. Yeah, I think I think it was it was it was Eddie, and um, it was the same feeling I have with Eddie. It's just like you can't believe that such a talent at such a young age, and even though Eddie was a little bit older than Bray at the time of his death, it's, it's they're still so young, man. Mm -hmm. Thirty six, four kids, and a wife. I mean, I thought of those before any of the wrestling stuff because I knew Bray loved his family so much. Wyndham loved his family so much. But as far as a wrestler, I mean, his his mark on wrestling will never be forgotten because one of the things that he always did for better or worse, and there were a lot of worses. There were, whether his fault, mm -hmm. it's his whomever's. Yep. Bray gave you every single thing he had from him, from that screwy brain of his. Mm -hmm. And I say screwy in the most loving way. He gave you everything he had in there. And as fans, that's all we ask for from performers, um, creative team members, bookers, wh whatever. We just ask for effort. And I, no, I don't think anyone gave you more from them than Bray did. And... I truly mean that it's not hyperbole. It's not being stuck in the moment. Like 
stuff he did will never be touched. It'll never be replicated because no one can think and act like him. Mm -hmm. There's not, I don't think there's a person like, nor will there ever be someone to come along and do the things that he did for better or worse. Uh, WWE is worse off for not having him around. You know, all the missteps through the years. Like he should be one. I always said, like, he and Roman Reigns, this is something I'll touch on later, they should have been 1A and 1B in this generation, not mm-hmm. 1 and 2. Bray Wyatt and Roman Reigns should have been 1A and 1B in that company. Um, but it's just, a, it's just a tragic loss. And I'm still not, like, this morning, it's funny Chris brought up that. I watched that promo, the return promo, probably about four times this morning. Mm-hmm. My wife and I watched it. Because that was one of the things she brought up. Could happen to be watching SmackDown that night when he made that return to SmackDown and cut that promo. And my wife said to me, boy, that hits a little different now, doesn't it? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it hits a lot different, actually, now. That and that, and I kept watching that Fiend debut over and over. Oh, and yeah. Over. Yeah. But like that, that, that SummerSlam against Ballard. Like, oh, because I'll never forget the feeling I had. I was standing, staring at the TV. I didn't say a word. I didn't move. I, I'll never forget watching him walk down to the ring. In that fiend get up, the music, the the, the severed head from his old character, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just one of the, one of the coolest, if not the coolest things I've ever seen. No. For as long as I've been a wrestling fan, that was just that was a moment I'll never forget. But especially no, coming, we, by the way, Jack, at that time in WWE when they weren't doing things like that, you know, nothing you would it, never it, think that would happen. It was still unique, and yeah. I remember that night. I had never seen so many. It like, like we write about WWE and ESPN writes about WWE, but like, I think like USA Today, I think even <laughs> CNN, like, the, like yeah. main more mainstream outlets were on this Fiend character, like talking about wrestling. He was yeah. all over the place because he was always ahead of the curve. In that, what Bray was perfect at, I'll end with this: is Bray was perfect at trying to blend old school wrestling with what we want in the new age. And that's where his ideas came from. And nobody could do it like him. And I think uh, one of the reasons why that was the case was his background, just coming from a, a third generation, being a third generation wrestler, coming from a family like the Wyndham's and the Rotundas, put him in such a unique position from a legacy standpoint, yet having a mind on the future and growing up in the WWE developmental system, yet still, he was like a rose that bloomed out of that concrete. And I'm not saying that the system's bad or anything like that, but he's so unique that even in a system that in some ways homogenizes moves and, you know, gets people to follow a certain script, he's still shown through all of that. And that's one of the reasons why it was wild to follow Bray's career, truly from the start, because don't forget, he began, we saw him for the first time, in the game show version of NXT as Husky Harris with Cody Rhodes as his pro, by the way, then joining the Nexus and eventually getting repackaged as Wyatt as FCW made that transition to NXT developmental. It was only about a year that he spent in that version of NXT forming the Wyatt family with Harper and Eric Rowan. And then they get called up to the main roster and actually kept their gimmicks, which even that was somewhat unique. The whole Follow the Buzzards gimmick, Wyatt feuding with Kane right off the jump, actually beating him in the Ring of Fire match. It was such a great way to kick off the gimmick. Then they did the Daniel Bryan feud again. This is right after this guy is getting called up. 
Brian joined the family. He turns on them in what was an incredibly hot angle, culminating at Royal Rumble when they fought one-on-one in what, in my opinion, was probably the second best singles match of Wyatt's career. Arguably, the best match period of his career also came in this early juncture when we got Wyatt family against The Shield in the six-man match at Elimination Chamber. Absolutely iconic. One of the best six-man matches in WWE history. But really, him being able to work WrestleMania 30 with John Cena in the angle where Wyatt was out to prove that Cena was truly a monster, that was where I thought the gimmick actually took off. And I was telling Chris right before we taped the show, uh, the WrestleMania 30 video package to Eminem's legacy is Mm -hmm. iconic. And I don't ever suggest you guys like pausing this show and going to like go watch or listen to something else because then you may not finish the show. But once we're done, I go, I'm going to list a number of matches and a number of promos and a bunch of things here. Go watch that WrestleMania 30 uh, video package to Legacy. It's incredible. And why it was actually, you could argue, even better after Mania because he starts corrupting all the kids and getting them to wear sheet masks and he's freaking out Cena. And then he has the match with Cena at Payback 2014, which in my opinion was the single best one-on-one match of his entire career. As you can tell, all these best matches I'm noting came in the same year. I never exactly understood why they had Wyatt set Harper and Rowan free when the gimmick was over, this first version of it, but it did lead to the new face of fear deal and the Undertaker match at WrestleMania 31. Even at this early juncture, the fact that he worked, guys, with Kane, Brian, Chris Jericho, Randy Orton, Cena, and Taker. I mean, if you're a debuting superstar on the main roster and they're giving you that list of talent to work with, they gave him every chance in the world to succeed and become a top guy in the company. And for a long time, he indeed was. Uh, yeah, it, like a lot of people at the time we talked about, oh, he should have beat Cena, he should have beat Undertaker, yada, yada, all these things. I, I do think part of that was you know, the Vince McMahon era of booking. Mm-hmm. If, if original Bray Wyatt came around now, he probably would have been treated a little bit differently. But I think what was so impressive about Bray and one of his legacies is that despite so many times when people said he should have been booked better or should have had this better, like that's not ultimately what we'll remember about him. We'll remember his characters and, and the things that he did with creativity he opened up your imagination to things you didn't think were possible in pro wrestling and actually at his last i saw a clip from his last press conference at um i think it was the rumble this year where he basically said like i want to do things that haven't been done before or people haven't thought of before otherwise what's even the point of doing this you know and so for all the good booking bad booking whatever you know, you, Jack mentioned Roman Reigns. There was that iconic moment, him and Roman getting the pin. Uh, I think it was on the bar. You know, they never became a tag team. They would have been a great tag team together for a longer period of time. It just didn't work out. Uh, but ultimately, I don't, I don't think that impacts the legacy. The, the, the legacy is something we'd never seen before. And even when he lost to John Cena, lost to Undertaker, didn't. it took so long for him to finally get the wins, the titles, uh, that that we thought he he should get, um, but that's it's not all it's not the legacy, and and that's a good thing, you know. I, I think in the end, Jack, what did you think about that early no. Wyatt family period? 
Oh, it was great because again, it was so unique. And, that, and that's that's a theme with Bray, unique. Like everything about him is unique, even at that time. Like that was, especially on the WWE main roster, like something like the Wyatt family, that was new and fresh mm-hmm. and intriguing and mysterious. And when they were, were, were running the vignettes and then the, the night he debuted against Kane, I mean, a debuting star from NXT, that was one of the, he was one of the first debuting stars from NXT to get such a pop when he finally showed up on the main roster. Like that place went nuts when he came out. Mm-hmm. He and the Wyatt when the Wyatt family came out. Um, no, like you said, like you said, Adam. Like when you look at the list of names that he worked with, it's it, it's incredible. And then Chris, that was a good point too. Of it, like I never, and it used to anger me so much because Cena thing, whatever. It's John Cena, but I was always on the train of there was no reason for him not to beat the Undertaker at WrestleMania Thirty One. He should have been the I one used to, that used to make yep. me so livid. And neither, neither here nor there. That following his passing yesterday, I didn't think about his "quote unquote" booking once. Right. That never came to mind. It was all the great stuff that he did, and that speaks to the legacy he leaves behind. No doubt. Now it was around this time where Wyatt, I think, cut the best promo of his career. It was so good. Okay that he got a crowd that was obnoxiously chanting what at him at the very beginning of this promo. Not only did they start cheering for him during the promo, not only did they serenade him with his song without any prompting like, you know, Seth Rollins does nowadays after the promo was over, then they gave him a standing ovation. I cannot remember a moment like that transpiring before or since. It's that remarkable. Let me play a portion of it for you right now. I used to have this mean old teacher. And this teacher, she used to look down upon me and she went to great measures to make sure that I remembered that I was a piece of trash and that I would never amount to anything in my life. She believed that everything she read in a book was true and that everything that I believed in was a lie. So, so I went up to her and I said, Miss Teacher Lady, What is it about you that makes you think that you're so much better than me? That makes you think you're so much smarter than me? Is it because, is it because your mommy and daddy paid for you to go to some fancy school so that you could wave this diploma around all of us? So that you could look down upon children and force feed them propaganda? Well, I say, nah. She looked at me and she said, Bray Wyatt, you are rotten. You stand for nothing. She said, Bray Wyatt, the first time that I ever looked inside of your eyes, I knew there was something inside of you. I knew that you were evil. But I'm proud to say that right now somewhere that teacher lady is rotting inside of some retirement home filled up with all of her life's regrets. But I, Bray Wyatt, stand here in front of you today as a conqueror, as a revolutionary, as the man of a thousand troops. And I say, Miss Teacher Lady, look at me right now. I got the whole damn world in my hands. 
I mean, chills, right? Like, like thinking about and listening to the way if his promo is incredible. But if you don't listen to the promo and you just listen to the crowd, the way they go from loud what chance to light what chance to cheers to really like going crazy for him, then singing for him. And, you know, you can't see it. But visually, they gave him a standing ovation once this was over. Jack, there are maybe five guys, probably less that can do that right now in all of professional wrestling. That's how unique Bray Wyatt was. I, I badly wanted to play that promo for everybody. Yeah, if, if, if five. If five. If five. Maybe three. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that and, and I saw a lot of people reference that promo last night. That actually slipped my mind, the Miss Teacher Lady promo. Uh, that that was so amazing. And, like, the way he could – like, the, the whole world in his hands thing wasn't just a gimmick. No. As far, as far as the wrestling world, he really could hold it in his hands. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Chris, you had anything on this, or should I just – can I keep going with the career? To, to, to that point right there, I think we all know he had one of the most hardcore fan bases in pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of having the whole world in his hands because he opened up, again, the imagination nation of what we thought was possible so everybody would dream up these storylines of the fiend how many how many twitter threads would you see from somebody being like oh what if the fiend shows up here and does this and like you'd roll your eyes and be like oh my god this is dumb or whatever but like people really really connected with him and with that character and with a promo like that which you could have cut 40 years ago right in any in any type of place in it would have worked. And I think it was just a, a credit to him connecting with fans on a different level. Certainly. I'm not uh, trying and, to, and that showed, and that showed why certainly I'm not trying to diminish any promos that have come before or come since, but to your point, cream of the crop, right? Hard times. This is one of those promos that it just would have worked at any era. And the fact that it came from this Bray Wyatt character, this early in his career, this isn't something he developed over a six, seven year period where he really figured out the character. So it was like year two of, uh, of, of this character existing. And, and he's cutting promos like that. I telling mean, that Miss Teacher later story legit was straight from he could have done that in 1978. Yeah. In right. a studio in Atlanta, Georgia with Gordon Solon. Yeah, exactly. And it would have hit the same way. And that was just one example. I mean, I, I didn't cut a bunch. I just cut that one. But it's one example of, you know, some promos. Look, let's not get it twisted. Some meandered. And, and, you know, as the character went on, there was only so much that he could actually say. But there was a period of time where he was doing that monthly. And it was just out of this world. So the Wyatt family came back together in 2015. That was crucial. And I vividly remember the debut of Braun Strowman and just being utterly shocked at his size given Harper and Rowan were already really big in their own right, especially compared to Bray. This really should have resulted in a dominant run for the Wyatt family, but it never actually transpired. They lost to the Brothers of Destruction. Then Wyatt and Harper lost a handicap match to Brock Lesnar. Eventually, they split again and then came back together as the new Wyatt family with Randy Orton. I think without Strowman, but with Orton, which was probably among the highlights of the gimmick. They won the tag team titles together, then eventually lost them via Freebird rule when Orton teamed with Harper. Orton excommunicated Harper from the Wyatt family. Then he won the Royal Rumble with Bray's help, only for Wyatt the next month to win his first and only WWE championship inside Elimination Chamber. He beat AJ Styles at the end of that. 
There was a great triple threat for the title with Cena and AJ Styles on SmackDown that came out of this right in the middle of the storyline. I just wanted to mention that so people could go watch it. Uh, Orton promised not to challenge Wyatt because they were in the same group and there were two world titles at the time. So he's like, I'll just challenge for the other one. And then came one of the most memorable moments, I think of maybe the decade, when Orton set the entire Wyatt family compound on fire and turned on Bray Wyatt. And it sure as hell seemed like the plan was going to be a triple threat at WrestleMania. Wyatt as champion, Orton as the Royal Rumble winner, and Harper as the one who had beef with Wyatt for allowing Orton to excommunicate him out of the group. And I do believe, and you talked about, you guys discussed earlier, not beating The Undertaker, not beating John Cena. I believe this was truly the first missed opportunity involving Wyatt because Harper, not Orton, not Wyatt, was the most over of the three. And they didn't pull the trigger. Not only was Harper not involved in the title match, where if he was, he should have won the WWE title. They did the strange worm overlay projection on the mat during the Wyatt-Orton match at WrestleMania 33. Even worse, they had Orton beat Wyatt and end his reign at 49 days. I was there in attendance for that. This was so immensely disappointing, especially as the end to what had been a fantastic storyline that they had built with all of these guys. They didn't throw Harper in. They didn't have Wyatt retain. And it was just one of those moments where you're like, and again, this is something that we'll mention here. And I know you mentioned, I think it was Jack. Hey, you know, now that we're looking back on Bray and and the memories, the great memories that we have, we're not going to remember the bad booking. But when we're going through his career, this is one of those moments where it was like, man, he had a chance to put over his best friend and they didn't even book the match. And then the match that they booked was the first time where like the ridiculousness of the way WWE booked the character began to show with the worms projected in that ring, Chris, at WrestleMania 33. Yeah, it's it's again a credit to Bray that there were so many times where it felt like they dropped the ball and yet he was able to get himself back to a spot where he was in a good position again, only for the ball to be dropped once again. And that's why we always, that's why no matter how many strange booking decisions there were, people would always imagine another scenario where it works out, you know, because, because you knew he could always get back there. It was great for him to get that title at that time. You would have really liked a longer reign for a lot of reasons and everything you laid out there. Um, So there were, Many times where booking decisions were strange. Um, a lot of these, you bringing them back up, I kind of just forgot about them because they're not the first things that come to mind when I think of Bray Wyatt. But yeah, WrestleMania 33, that period, when he, when, he, when he had a title, when he had an opportunity to do some really cool stuff, instead they go back to Randy Orton, beat some spooky stuff. And it's, again, I think a, a real... The, the late Vince McMahon booking era... You know, of all the the things that people will be frustrated with and complain about, I think the consistent, strange Bray Wyatt decisions will be among the top of that. Yeah, I don't think it, like anyone's going to argue. Like, I it's we still talk about it now, and you know, when you have two world titles, which is something you know, I don't, I, I never agree with in wrestling. I don't like the two world title deal. But one of the positives it does give you 
is the the flexibility to see, okay, well, let's see if this guy can work as a top guy. And Adam, like you said, Brody was hot at that time. There was no harm in putting the title on him at that WrestleMania, turning the match into a triple threat and, triple threat and giving him the title. Because I would have loved to see what he and Bray could have done on their own mm-hmm. in a few. Especially a few at the top of the card. I mean, again, I don't know how much leeway they would have given Brody, but you, you saw in AEW how good Brody was at being a top character and talking. And could he have led his own faction, maybe? Which he very well could. Like, we know he could have, but with WWE have let him cook it, or maybe he could lead his own group against Bray. Mm-hmm. Or Bray Babyface, maybe. Uh, but no, that... That was that's just that that was one of the worst matches in WrestleMania history. <laughs> yeah. That was, I mean, there's been a lot of that was one of the worst. Yeah. But God, but 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 like you said, you know, Bray was one of those guys who, no matter what happens, he's always going to be fine. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's that Chris Jericho effect, the Roddy Piper effect. It, it's that part of the problem with his booking was. You could put Bray in a losing position, but you're going to say to yourself, well, he's going to be okay. But then what happens is once you start to keep doing that over and over and over, then it becomes a problem. And then fans, you you run the risk of fans losing investment. But Bray was just, Bray was still to his credit, so good at making you care. Like Chris said, okay, well that happened. That sucked. But what's he going to do next? Yeah. So let's talk about the end of the cult leader version of Bray Wyatt. So coming out of WrestleMania 33, Wyatt had his first feud with Finn Balor and lost to the Demon King and then Balor himself. Their third match, you guys will remember, was supposed to be the absolutely absurd (laughs) Pumpkin Demon versus Sister Abigail match at TLC that I believe still to this day would have killed both of them if it happened. (laughs) But Bray got sick. And instead, we got the incredible Balor-AJ Styles match. You want to talk about one of the most blessing in disguise situations in wrestling history? That was one of them. I actively remember being nervous about what would have happened in that match if it actually went down because it seemed destined to be an absolute train wreck. Luckily, they dropped the Balor feud after that. They just said, forget it. And Wyatt bounced back with Matt Hardy, where they finally brought the broken gimmick as Woken to WWE at the time. Wyatt disappeared in the Lake of Reincarnation during their feud, returned as a babyface, helped Hardy win the Battle Royal at WrestleMania 34, and then they won the Raw Tag Team titles together. Apparently, during this time, both of them were obviously very vocal about what they wanted out of the team, but Vince McMahon obviously was hesitant to go way too far with their ideas. And and when you're putting Matt Hardy and Bray Wyatt together, chances are some of their things were probably a little bit far out there, right? So maybe Vince was right in some degrees here, but also they got immensely frustrated by it. And because of that, it kind of flickered out. I think Matt Hardy may have gotten hurt. And then Wyatt kind of went away. It it always felt like it was a gimmick where a lot could have been accomplished, but the cult leader Bray Wyatt was always kind of treated tier 1B rather than Jack tier one a that sister Abigail thing, man. All I keep thinking, remember for months and months and months, there were the whispers and the, the speculation about, are they going to bring in an actual sister Abigail? Mm-hmm. And you'd hear names from, from um, girls in NXT 
and stuff. And then it just ended up being Bray yeah. himself. It was unbelievable. That's just the funniest thing. Uh, so, no, um, good. No, cult leader Bray Wyatt, man. That for all the good and bad mo, it, like that. That was you could you could have done more with it, and you, and you could have done a lot better. And he was so good for Matt Hardy too in that in that era, like you the era you just mentioned, mm-hmm. because Matt with the broken with the, the broken Matt character hadn't completely run its course. But it was it was so hard to pull off in front of a WWE audience than it was in TNA when it got really hot. So putting him with Bray and kind of blending those together was the perfect move. For sure. So nine months after that was the beginning of The Fiend. I vividly remember some of those tease vignettes thinking, what the fuck is this? And then Wyatt shows up in the Firefly Funhouse and I'm still like, what the fuck is this? Until it quickly became the single most captivating thing on WWE television at the time. I mean, the genius of the split personality gimmick and the puppets, Mercy the Buzzard for Waylon Mercy, who inspired the cult leader, Abby the Witch for Sister Abigail, Ramblin' Rabbit, was never confirmed, but it was either making fun of him rambling, Wyatt, or possibly Kevin Dunn, uh, Huskus the Pig Boy representing Husky Harris and his weight issues, and then, holy shit, the boss making fun of Vince McMahon. Firefly Funhouse was so far out, man, And then the introduction of The Fiend, that first entrance, Jack already talked about it before, but one of the singularly most captivating moments I can remember in professional wrestling, from the remixed heavy metal theme to the pitch black arena to the lantern with a mask of his face, holy shit, and it was running so hot. The biggest thing in WWE, he kicked the shit out of wrestlers, legends, and he held our attention in the palm of his hand for five straight months. It brought so many people back to wrestling. The number one comment I got on Twitter as we were getting prepared to talk about Bray Wyatt was that he got me back into wrestling, primarily with this character. And people became invested in WWE again until disaster struck. But Chris, before we get into the disaster, what do you remember from the beginning of this gimmick? I know Jack talked about it earlier. The Fiend was legitimately one of the scariest looking things I've ever seen. Like, not in wrestling. I mean, in anything. As in any, you could put that up with any horror villain you've seen. And obviously, I I know they had horror people work on the mask to create it. I forgot who it was, but some famous person Mm -hmm. made that mask. It was legitimately terrifying. Like, it was no longer spooky, mystical, weird. It was legitimately scary. And the the flashing lights and the the ringing noise when things would happen, like it would legitimately like frightening. And it, it was great to see again. You're always like Bray's got something else cooking. Boom, you get hit with this, and you're yeah. like, damn, that's freaky. <laughs> and and it was something every week you couldn't wait to see. Yeah. So the disaster I mentioned, the Seth Rollins feud. And the Hell in a Cell match. It was such a bad idea to have The Fiend go after the Universal title at all when the character had no need or desire for something like that. And Rollins was in such a delicate state at the time. He had just won the title as a babyface. He was championing WWE against a lot of external forces, getting a lot of criticism from IWC fans who were staunchly anti-WWE. Remember, AEW did not exist at that time. 
I think he got into it with Will Ospreay on, on social media. But Rollins was in such a delicate state. And then WWE not only booked this match where fans were cheering the heel fiend over him, they did a referee stoppage in a hell in a cell match, which was absolutely the height of stupidity. The match was so bad that it killed Rollins as a face, nearly killed the Fiend gimmick. The only way WWE could rehab it was by having Fiend beat Rollins at Blood Money in the Sand in a false count anywhere match that was actually solid. And the title reign was actually going decently well with the Fiend until another absolute disaster struck. Goldberg, of all people, beating the Fiend clear clean, this unbeatable character with a single spear. And they did it just so Goldberg could lose the title to Roman Reigns at WrestleMania. Except, we all know what happened there. These two pieces of booking were the paradigm for everything that was wrong with WWE creative and Vince McMahon simply not rolling with Bray's gimmick in a proper manner while it was hot. Am I not right about that, Jack? This is dumb. That was the dumbest shit. That's the best way I could put it. I'm not going to try to fancy it. it. It was the dumbest shit. And but also, like we talked, we we talk about booking over and over. And like first iteration of Bray, you you know, took him so long, 2017, to win WWE title. Uh, oftentimes before that, we're like, why isn't this guy a world champion yet? What is going on? So then he debuts his Fiend character. And he goes right into the title. We're like, no, 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 not this time. Keep him away from that. We don't want that. No, 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 no. He doesn't need to do that. Keep him away for a while. But they're like, no, here we go right now. That like that hell in a cell match, man. I've never seen like, remember the videos coming out of that afterwards from people who were there live? Yeah. Just like the fans were so pissed. Yeah. And this like they were so pissed off. And, and and Chris, this was as we were starting the podcast. Like this is this is the, the culmination of the getting over wrestling yes. podcast here. Uh, of all the Bray Wyatt booking things and things that went wrong, whatever, uh, with, with storytelling, this is the top of the list. Yeah, this is the top of yeah. the worst thing that happened for because it damaged everybody, and it took a long time for a lot of people to get out of it. Uh, the Hell in a Cell part, and then the Goldberg part was like that was again that was when we were starting the podcast and it was that period where we were just like man i'm not liking what we're getting from wwe week after week and it's just another oh he's he's got an opportunity and they blow it opportunity here and they blow it and you felt like they might never get it right and it felt like we were just going to be in this endless cycle where goldberg takes the title from bray just so he could lose it to roman reigns and that doesn't even happen anyway yeah and Somehow, amazingly coming out of this, where it looks like we're at true rock bottom for this character, it's now unsalvageable, we get the genius Firefly Funhouse match, which to this day was why it's only WrestleMania victory and not really a victory at that. And it came during a pandemic in a cinematic match where he was finally allowed to just show every single part of his creative seemingly unencumbered. Somehow, they made Lemonade out of lemon after that with the Wyatt Strowman feud, the involvement of Alexa Bliss and the slow burn of that storyline, which was actually perfect for the pandemic where they could get away with pre-tapes and camera work that would not have gone over with the live crowds. That allowed The Fiend to be rehabilitated. Reigns also kicked off his still running title reign, let's not forget, by beating Wyatt and Strowman in the end of that feud for the title. We even got what I would say was an extremely strong storyline continuation 
with Wyatt Bliss and Orton that included the Firefly Inferno match. But it was after that again where everything fall apart, just as it always seemed to once his character had some momentum. Something happened between the Firefly Inferno match and WrestleMania 37, where whatever the plans were for Wyatt and Bliss and Orton on that show changed drastically. The match, if you want to call it that, was atrocious. The second time something with Wyatt and Orton at WrestleMania seemed really strong on paper, but ended up being, frankly, dog shit. It pissed everyone off, probably no one more than Wyatt, and details were scarce on like what happened afterward, but Wyatt went away, Bliss continued on, and then Wyatt got released nearly four months later, never appearing again. I remember thinking how absurd it was for WWE to release him at the time. But then at the same time, if they were going to screw like with his creative that much, I was like, well, maybe it's better for him to just go and do something else. But Chris, from Firefly Funhouse to his release, I mean, what are your thoughts about that period of the Fiend character? Firefly Funhouse is maybe the coolest thing I've ever seen in wrestling. It was so creative, so otherworldly, and it was fitting that the only time that they could really figure out what to do with Bray was when they were released from the shackles (laughs) that is typical pro wrestling. When they were forced to try different things, that's when they hit on stuff. Firefly Funhouse was incredible. That whole thing's on YouTube, by the way, if if you want to go rewatch it. I, I've watched it so many times. It, that thing is, is many people have said this, but I agree. The Firefly Funhouse is a love letter to pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. That is somebody who cares about the intricacies and the details and the history and the lore of so much of wrestling history. And going on from after that, I like the Bray Strowman feud, the, the, the match mm-hmm. where it was uh, F- Firefly Bray versus Strowman was good. I didn't mind the swamp fight. I thought it was creative at the time when when stuff was was weird. You've got you've got uh, Randy Orton setting the fiend on fire uh, in, in the in the in the Thunderdome. Like just they did different things, and that was when it, the creative juices could really go from that. Then we get back into uh, wrestling type of stuff and you have the wrestlemania match and the bliss the bliss stuff was good but they again they're back in wrestling mode and they couldn't figure out what to do with it couldn't figure out what to do with the Alexa bliss after they got rid of bray wyatt they still haven't figured out what to do with the Alexa bliss since then and so a, a really frustrating end but that that period was one of the most unusual runs we've seen in wrestling history because it had to be And only Bray Wyatt could have done something like that. Jack, I know you were in and out of WWE at this time. I presume you saw at least the Firefly Funhouse match, though. No, this was I was still because it like the early days of the pandemic, I was still watching. It it was in the middle of the pandemic where he said, I can't do this anymore. Gotcha. But the Firefly Funhouse match, uh, what I will remember about that is the night before was main evented by the Boneyard match, Undertaker and AJ, which was great. Mm -hmm. And we were all raving about that coming out. And then by this point, with everything with everything we had just talked about, there was this stigma around around angles with Bray, where well, this could go really good or this could go really sideways. And Undertaker AJ was so good, I remember thinking, oh, so this stuff with Cena, oh, this might not hit, oh, this might be bad tomorrow. Lightning can't strike twice. Not only did lightning strike twice, that was one of I, I I'm comfortable saying that was one of the most entertaining things I've seen in pro wrestling. Yeah. Firefly Flynn House match. Yeah, it, 
the love letter to pro wrestling, all the callbacks. And, and what I enjoy most about that is when John talked about it afterwards and, and it was just, he embraced sitting down in a room for two hours and they said, here's what we're going to do. There weren't 30 some writers involved or whatever it is. There, it was just two guys sitting in a room. John owed something to him from years prior. He let Bray do all the talking and they said, here's what we're going to do. And they went out there and that is, that's a match that I'll never forget. Um, but then, I don't know. Then, like you said, it is every time he gets momentum, it all falls apart. Yeah. And there's there was the Randy feud, the, the, that weird WrestleMania, like so strange. Again, and with Orton and Wyatt. I think our consensus was. Yeah. I think our consensus was that the Fiend was going to beat Randy in that WrestleMania match, and I, then it opens the show. It happens, and it was oh, how long was it? few minutes i mean not, not even alexa bliss appears on top of the box with the black goo dripping out of her mouth and then it was over and then it was over and people were like yeah well vince had problems well, with bray and like just wanted to yeah, have him lose and oh. afterwards randy cut that promo where he was like you'll never see the fiend in this company again which to me was like vince talking through randy saying i'm done with this shit yeah yeah i'm telling you you're gonna cut this promo and but it's gonna I'm going to suddenly tell everyone I'm done with this. Yeah. And I think it was a combination. It was Bray digging in his heels for the things that he wanted to accomplish with the gimmick and Vince digging in his heels of, look, I lead creative. I'm head of this company and you still have to go through me with some of this stuff. And just to see what transpired over that year where it was like, wow, they actually saved the fiend and they came up with a real two really good storylines. And then it fell apart again at WrestleMania again against Orton. And then obviously he got released from WWE a year later he came back, and it's just sad that we never got to see the culmination of what was planned for Wyatt's latest run in WWE. That comeback, as I mentioned, with the virality of the White Rabbit moments and the QR codes, the awe-inducing return of Extreme Rules, the promo he cut as himself for the first time in the ring, which Chris mentioned, and both of you mentioned, actually. Uh, the, the passing of the torch moment with The Undertaker at Raw is XXX. Half a decade after we wanted it, sure, but at least it finally happened with Triple H holding the book. All of that was incredible. The Uncle Howdy stuff, it was hit or miss based on the week. And while the sponsored, you know, pitch black match at Royal Rumble was largely disappointing, and it's unfortunate that it was the last match of his career, we saw what appeared to be that the Wyatt Six at the end of that match, the gimmick that they were trying to do, it was supposed to be an entree into giving us more about Uncle Howdy, more about Bray Wyatt, and what they had been teasing for so long. I'll definitely look back on this last run positively, Chris, because the negative moments were all just kind of frustration at a lack of progress, not because anything he did was necessarily bad. It's safe to say the entire deal was intriguing and perhaps the greatest show of his unique creativity because he was finally getting the opportunity seemingly to do whatever he wanted with his entire vision being put on the screen. They even hired someone to be a big creative uh, person about long-term booking who was friends with Bray Wyatt to help see the vision through. So it's obviously disappointing. We never got to see the full culmination of that vision as the last time we saw Wyatt in WWE. Yeah. The, the, um, the uncle howdy thing to finish his career unexpectedly. Uh, I, it was nothing for me. I, I'm pretty sure as we talked about in the podcast, I just never had much to say about 
pod in most weeks because just nothing was happening. Like you said, not bad. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, oh, I can't believe they did that. It was more just nothing happened. And and I, I don't know what it was, and I don't know if there were other kinds of things that they were still trying to figure out. Obviously, the health issues pop up, so you know it, it has an impact on things. Right. Uh, could never really tell where it was going or what the point was. I, I don't know if they ever figured out what they were going to do. But I, I also think it's worth noting, in, in a weird way, the, the pitch black match, that feud with L.A. Knight is what got L.A. Knight really going. It did. You know, and I, and I think it's a credit to Bray that a lot of people who worked with him were elevated or, or, or taken in an important direction, a new direction, um, as long as the booking didn't kill them like Seth Rollins at one time. Right. Um, it, it was a credit to, it was a very, very odd situation. And one of those legacies will be that that it helped make LA Knight, even mm-hmm. if that's what not what WWE planned. I think th- that Raw is XXX moment where Undertaker says something to Bray Wyatt. I'm so glad we got that yes we had to have that last final pass just like Cena needed to beat i'm sorry just like why it needed to beat cena at firefly front house and get that he had to have the moment from the undertaker and we got it but on that same promo that same segment la and i did all the talking <laughs> yes in that whole thing and and so i i think um as we think back back to that it it it's a credit to everybody involved in kind of how that worked out. It was, I, I thought it was going to be nonsense and terrible and ended up being okay. So not, not a great final run for, for why what, what I'll always remember about that last run is that return promo where he opened up personally about what he'd gone through and how he was feeling and how he was still trying to figure things out and how important that connection he had was with fans. And it kept him going and it kept a lot of fans going. And, and that's ultimately the thing I'll always come back to with Bray is that touching moment there. And I think that'll live on for a long time. Yeah. Jack did the white rabbit stuff and the QR codes and all that, that kind of gets you to buy back in and kind of say, I really want to see what Bray does here. It was cool. But I mean, my only criticism, I, I thought it went on a little too long. Mm-hmm. I thought they dragged it a little bit but it did pique my interest enough where i was like okay because it's bray it's like like few things can get me to actually turn on wwe programming these days pay full attention cody Rhodes being one of them but when bray was doing all that stuff i was paying attention again right and i was tuning in when it was on and i mean we i had to because it was college football season i had to miss his debut at extreme rules but Mm. you know like like i said the smackdown like i tuned in when they said bray's gonna talk i tuned in I was hooked on Fox that night. Yeah. Um, just, just, he is like, I mean, I saw somebody um, bring up already, and I don't think if they put him in the Hall of Fame next year, yeah, do it. Oh, yeah. WrestleMania 40 in Philly? Absolutely. Do it. Yeah. Put him in the Hall of Fame next year. Absolutely. There's no argument. Don't try to be stupid. Don't try, put right. him in the Hall of Fame next year. He is a Hall of Famer. Undoubtedly. And what you said about him kind of drawing you to the screen, it's what I was mentioning earlier. You know, the characters were great. And the storylines, many of them were great. Um, And the promos were great. But there was something magnetic about Bray Wyatt that just drew fans to him. And they wanted to see him, no matter what he was doing, no matter how frustrated they might have been with his booking. They wanted to see 
Bray Wyatt. They wanted to buy his merchandise. They wanted to be there in attendance, and they wanted to watch him on their televisions. As we wrap up with Bray, I want to read a tweet that he sent in August 2022, just as he was on his way back into WWE. He said, wrestling is not a love story. It's a fairy tale for masochists, a comedy for people who criticize punchlines, a fantasy most can't understand, a spectacle no one can deny. Lines are blurred. Heroes are villains. Budgets are cut. Business is business. But it can also be a land where dead men walk, where honor makes you elite, where demons run for office and rock bottom is a reason to rejoice. Woo! It's an escape, a reason to point the blame at anyone but yourself for two to three hours, an excuse to be a kid again, and nothing matters except the moment we are in. Wrestling is not a love story. It's much more. It's hope. And in a world surrounded in hate, greed, and violence, a world where closure may never come, we all know a place that has hot and cold hope on tap for better or for worse. And if that doesn't wrap up, Bray Wyatt, and if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about professional wrestling, that I'm not sure what better way we could conclude our remembrance of Bray Wyatt. Now, Jack, obviously we spent a lot of time on Wyatt due to his shocking and untimely death, but certainly not to be overlooked. The wrestling world lost the legendary Terry Funk on Wednesday at age 79. It's almost impossible to contextualize Funk's entire career as we just did with Wyatt, but the man wrestled for more than five decades and was one of the most influential people in the ring and out of the ring. You don't have enough fingers and toes to count the number of wrestlers who cite Terry Funk as their icon, their hero, the man who helped them fall in love with wrestling or taught them what it meant to be a professional wrestler. He was a second-generation star following his father, Dory Funk, alongside his brother, Dory Funk Jr., and he became simply one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Most modern fans know him from his hardcore wrestling and how he helped pioneer that style in the United States. But that was the latter portion of his career, where he wrestled more hardcore matches, largely to slow things down. And it sounds weird, but he did it to protect his body because his joints were so hurt from decades of wrestling that thumbtacks or chair shards, they hardly compared to like knees and hips hurting him. Funk wrestled for AJPW, ECW, USWA, WCW, WWF, the NWA, all the major territories, including Stampede Wrestling. He won world titles in ECW, NWA, and USWA. He was also a WWF World Tag Team Champion as Chainsaw Charlie alongside Cactus Jack. They won the titles off the New Age Outlaws in that incredible dumpster match. And of course, He's a WWE Hall of Famer and NWA Hall of Famer. He also made famous cameo as a bouncer in Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze and an over-the-top with Sylvester Stallone. He was a big part of that wrestling documentary, Beyond the Mat, which came out when I was a kid. And if you haven't seen that, you should definitely see Beyond the Mat. The first big moment of his career came when he famously defeated Jack Briscoe for the NWA World Heavyweight title in Miami in 1975, held it for more than a year defending against Dusty Rhodes, Giant Baba, and others only to lose to Harley Race, who was a family rival. One of the most iconic tag team matches maybe ever came with Terry and Dory fighting Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen for AJPW in 1984. You can definitely find that online. He had rivalries with Jerry the King Lawler and the Junkyard Dog, Hulk Hogan, Tito Santana, Ric Flair famously in WCW that ended in an I Quit match at Clash of Champions 
1989 by any person's ratings. I don't care who you are. It's a five-star match. And for me, it was easily the best match of Terry Funk's career. He had another great match with Flair that same year at Great American Bash. I believe both of them are on Peacock and you can watch them. Mm -hmm. Uh, ECW completely revived his career. And he actually started with them when it was still Eastern Championship Wrestling as Paul Heyman was making that transition to Extreme Championship Wrestling. There was the Funk Brothers versus Public Enemy barbed wire match. That's famous. Uh, His friendship with Mick Foley truly grew there as they battled. And he fought all of them. Shane Douglas, the Sandman, Sabu, Tommy Dreamer. He headlined the first ever ECW pay-per-view, Barely Legal. And he was named Lifetime Heavyweight Champion of ECW by Paul Heyman because he truly did help get ECW off the ground. Without Terry Funk, there's no ECW. Funk had a surprise appearance in the 1997 Royal Rumble, and then he became Chainsaw Charlie nearly 11 months later alongside Foley, which was one of the highlights of Mick's career. He talks about it all the time. They did the dumpster spot on stage with the New Age Outlaws, and then they had the match that I mentioned, the dumpster match for the titles. They won them, uh, Charlie, Ch- Chainsaw Charlie and uh, Cactus Jack at WrestleMania 24, which was a career highlight. But he was soon out of WWF after that. After 1998, he wrestled sparingly. When WCW tried to match whatever WWF was doing after WWF had won the Monday Night Wars, for the most part, um, they started a hardcore wrestling division. They made Terry Funk a big offer. He came in in 2000, won the hardcore title a few times. When WCW did this, they were basically in the midst of their serious decline. He was only there for a brief time. And then he went to the independence when WCW folded and WWF had largely moved on from him. And then he wrestled for like 15 more years after that, which is crazy. So from 2001 to 2016, he had matches here and there, mostly reunions with friends on independent shows. He was in America and Japan. I remember there was a story about him turning down WWE for one night stand only to instead do a Shane Douglas show that was also honoring ECW like the same weekend. That was a bad decision. He did do some one-off appearances though in WWE. He was on one of the one night stands ultimately. And he got inducted with his brother, Dory Funk, into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2009. And his last appearance came before WrestleMania 32 when he worked with Dean Ambrose ahead of the Brock Lesnar match, gave him a chainsaw, hearkening back to the Chainsaw Charlie gimmick. Jack, you know, Terry Funk is, I mean, incomparable is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but there's few. And he may not be on wrestling's Mount Rushmore, but when you look at the greatest wrestlers of all time and you put a list like that together, you cannot make that list without Terry Funk's name being on it. No, if <clears throat> he's one of the few guys, like it's it's all subjective, but you hear some crazy answers out there when you ask people who's the greatest professional wrestler of all time. If I ask you that and you say Terry Funk, I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> no, correct. I, yeah. I think there isn't. Right? If you say Terry Funk is the greatest professional wrestler of all time, I'll say, okay, yeah, makes sense. Um, One of my earliest memories of watching wrestling was the feud with Flair. I was watching that night with mm-hmm. my grandfather when Flair fit because Fla- before that feud, like that was a perfect that was one of the most perfect transitions in wrestling from one feud to another where Flair had the NWA title trilogy with Ricky Steamboat. And the third match had judges at ringside, Terry being one of those judges. And it was just like, oh, okay, well, we have NW former NWA champion Terry Funk here. He's gonna be one of the judges. And after Flair beats Steamboat, Funk gets in the ring, fake congratulates him. But the thing about that is in 1989, seeing someone get pile-driven onto a table was nuts. Today, it's the norm. But when Terry hit Ric Flair with the pile driver onto the table outside, 
that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen as a five-year-old. It was nuts. And like Adam said, if you get a chance to watch the I Quit match at Clash of the Champions, do it. It, it is. That is a legitimate five-star professional wrestling match. Yeah. And Terry, you know, there's a lot of about him as a person, too. Like, you don't see a lot of people talk bad about him, but he, he was just such a smart, caring human being, too. I mean, a lot of people didn't know this until a lot later, but, like, Terry at one time was tapped to be the NWA champion. Now, mm-hmm. you know, for those who aren't familiar, because I, I, I know I'm old, but <laughs> to be the NWA champion, which was the pinnacle of wrestling, not being the, like, the, you were at the top of your game if you were the NWA champion, but to be the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, the group of promoters from around the country had to vote for you to be champion. Like, it wasn't Vince McMahon saying, I'm going to put the strap on you. These guys had to get together and vote you as champion. Right. Then they set up the match, and you were made champion. They voted Terry as champion in the 70s. Well, Terry did something unheard of. He got the title, and then he said, I don't want to be NWA champion anymore. I'm away from my family too much. And at the time, they were like, I'm sorry, come again? He's like, I don't want this anymore. And you just never heard of wrestlers going to to the NWA committee and saying, I don't want to be champion anymore. But Terry did that. Um, do, you, do you know why Terry got into acting? Like Terry Funk got into acting so he could have health insurance. Um, that's why he did, that's why he did those movies. Like it was smart. Like I'm sure other wrestlers may have thought of it. Maybe they weren't good at it, but that's why Terry did it. So he could have health insurance to protect his body. Um, and you know, you talk about ECW, that's well documented. But what he did for FMW in Japan. A promotion run by Etsuji Onita, who is a, a deathmatch legend, mm-hmm. and Terry was in the seventies and eighties for especially all, well, more specifically, all Japan. Like Terry and Dory would go over to all Japan, and they were freaking rock stars in the same vein that Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen were. Like if you could look up videos on YouTube, just look up their entrances. You don't even have to look up the matches. Look up Terry Funk's entrances in all Japan. They were mobbed by the Japanese people. And FMW at the time in the midnight in the 90s was a deathmatch promotion that was look, really looked down upon by all Japan and New Japan by you know Baba and Inoki were like what is this? Like this Onita guy's out of his mind. Well Terry says I'll help you out. Uh, you know what? I like where this is going. I see this as the new wave in wrestling much like he did ecw and he goes i'm gonna help you out and he went over to japan and he helped onita get that promotion off the ground and their death matches helped it helped the japanese fans accept deathmatch wrestling more because terry funk was involved the japanese people said okay onita's out of his mind but if terry funk is willing to come help him then maybe we should take this a little more seriously so he was always he was ahead of the curve, not just with ECW, but with getting FMW over in Japan. And I mean, his run one of his underrated ones is that underrated matches that's not talked that's not talked about enough is with Lawler mm-hmm. in Memphis, but the empty arena match, which is crazy because Memphis was famous for every Monday night they put twenty thousand people in that coliseum every Monday night. But Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler did the empty arena thing, and it's one of the best empty arena matches you'll ever see. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's on Peacock. I don't know. I don't. No, I, I don't know if the match I saw it on you. I saw it on YouTube. I don't think it's on Peacock. 
it might be on YouTube because I think Lawler sold the rights to someone. Like Peacock can't get a hold of the Memphis stuff for some reason. I wish they could, but no. But no, like that's what's crazy about it is that you know Memphis's claim to fame in the seventies and eighties was they could fill that place every Monday night. Yet one of the best matches in the history of Memphis is Terry and Jerry in the empty arena. Mm-hmm. Um, no, a revolutionary wrestler. And just so much ahead of the curve and just so respected. I mean, when he had the first of his 19 retirement matches, you know, and Bret Hart was the WWF champion at the time and he had his retirement show in Amarillo and Bret just went to Vince and said, like, Terry Terry wanted to wrestle Bret in his last match. Well, his first last match. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, Terry wanted to wrestle Bret. Bret just went to Vince and said, Terry wants to wrestle me in his little show. I got to go do it for him. And Vince had no problem with it. Vince is like, all right, yeah, you go, you can, you can, uh, you can go wrestle him. Then it turned into a big thing where Brett wanted Brett as the WWF champion wanted to lose the match to Terry, and Terry said, I can't do that, Brett. There's no way I can't do that. I'm not doing it. But like, it, but that's how respected he was. Where Brett as the as much as Brett held the WWF championship in high regard, he wanted to lose that match to Terry Funk. Mm-hmm. Um. But no, one of the one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time, one of the most loving, caring, just one of those guys, much like Bray. When, when was the last time you heard someone say a bad word about Terry Funk? Never. I mean, consummate professional, the type of legendary persona that carries beyond what happens in the ring. And it's just... It hurts, man. And I read a bunch of social media stuff um, for Bray Wyatt, obviously. I'll read one for Terry Funk just because it's Mick Foley. Um, He called him his mentor, his idol, one of the closest friends that he's ever had and the greatest wrestler that he ever saw. And And he says, if you get a chance, look up a Terry Funk match or a Terry Funk promo and give thanks to this incredible man who gave so much for so long to so many, there will never be another like him. And I hope that Jack, what you and I just ran down about his career and some of those individual matches give people some tentpole moments to go and find because we're not, you know, just throwing those out there. The, the matches that we mentioned here, primarily, I mean, if you watch the Terry Funk Ric Flair matches, the two of them, Clash of uh, Champions and Clash of the Champions, I'm sorry, and Great American Bash, watch those back to back. I mean, that just tells you who he was as a professional wrestler. And, and for those who are long term listeners of this podcast and you know how, you know, I work great stuff. I love, sure. But like match story and psychology, like the I quit match. That's exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to like a perfect professional wrestling match. So you can watch that. You can have fun and, and do the dumpster stuff with the New Age Outlaws, um, you know, in WWF. And there's plenty of deathmatch stuff out there. The empty arena match. Uh, I looked it up while you were talking. 1981, if anyone wants to Google it. Available on YouTube and, and Daily Motion, any video website, you can see it. Um, but Terry Funk's career was incomparable. I mean, again, 50 years in the ring. And, and sure, some of it at the end was just sparse here and there. But all the accomplishments, all the incredible legendary names that he wrestled. And to have Terry Funk's death come at age 79, 24 hours, of course, before Bray Wyatt died at, at age 36, which obviously is far too young. Um, an extremely rough week in the world of professional wrestling. And I appreciate Jack and Chris, of course, joining us today here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast as we remembered Bray Wyatt and Terry Funk. 
He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world